Welcome to The Term, a podcast by the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalia Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? We're finally here. We are finally here. It is the last day of the term. You know, Natalie, I really found a way to make sure I never have too relaxing of a birthday, just, you know, it being <laughs> at the end of the term. So, Wait, it is it your re- birthday? Yeah, the 30th, yeah. Jimmy, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie. Well, I just, I picked one of the few professions other than maybe like working at an auditing firm where things have to be all done by like the end of Q2, which is similarly on June 30th, to just make sure that I'm never too at ease, too com- But anyway, you're right. The term is over and now we have the summer recess to kind of look to, but we got some kind of uh, plate clearing items to get through before we're out of here, right? That's right, Jimmy. So uh, officially today, Justice Breyer has retired. He sent in his second official notice to President Biden saying, yes, I will indeed do this since everything is, you know, set for my successor. Um, And Judge Jackson at noon today was sworn in. Mazel tov to Justice Breyer there on, uh, you know, wrapping up, I believe it was somewhere around the tune of 28 years on the Supreme Court since 1994. Uh, Pretty impressive stuff. Uh, Justice Designate Jackson becomes Justice Jackson again, in case our listeners forgot. She is the 116th member of the court, the uh, the 104th associate justice on the court, and the first black woman uh, appointed to the Supreme Court in over 230 years. The court also released an orders list uh, this morning, taking up some, you know, taking action on some some items that were before it at conference yesterday. Among them, uh, a case out of North Carolina that's going to be set for argument next term, dealing with the so-called independent state legislature theory, under which state houses, state lawmakers, that is, not state supreme courts, have the final say about election rules. Now, this was kind of a theory pushed by Republican litigants during the, you know, some of the aftermath of the uh, the 2020 election. And finally, there's a case up before the Supreme Court that's going to give, uh, you know, the I, I suspect the conservative justices the opportunity whether or not to, to kind of declare that state Supreme Courts can't rely on their own state constitutions to talk, to, to set final, you know, election rules. And that under the federal constitution, that is, um, it's, it's really a, uh, up to the individual lawmakers or the lawmakers as a whole through their state assemblies, their legislatures to set the rules for elections. That's going to be a big one. Uh, I was Natalie, about to say, I feel like that was something we kept kind of discussing when we saw had all those election cases last term um, and it seemed like the justices were a bit split I'll, on yeah, who should yeah. have final say. <laughs> say I mean, we, we need to give the, the independent state legislature theory kind of the full term treatment here i think we've kind of just kind of circled around it as some of these cases have bubbled up i didn't think it was as urgent as it now appears to be considering the court has now taken up a case asking it to adopt this theory um and uh, you know that they, they really didn't waste too much time in doing so so we'll have to obviously before that case is argued bring on uh you know a, a guest or have a good conversation about just what the impact of this is. But let's move along to some of the other kind of decisions that we've been uh, seeing in recent days out of the Supreme Court now that it's finally wrapped up all of its work. So we 
Last recorded a special episode on Friday, Natalie, right? Just breaking down the, the court's decision in the abortion case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. And we've gotten several more rulings since, uh, one on Monday that we're not going to spend too much talking about just because it was a few days ago at this point, but in the case of the praying football coach. That's right. Uh, we've discussed this one. Uh, if anyone kind of needs a reminder, please go back to our previous episode where we, we talked about, you know, this fairly big religious rights case. Um, it was decided on Monday that in favor of the coach and religious freedom. Um, well, just a, before we move on, just a word on that one. Yeah, it was to, the, the key takeaway there, um, just as a refresher to listeners, is that the Supreme Court held that a Washington State School District had violated the constitutional rights of a assistant high school football coach who had a years-long tradition of praying and leading motivational prayer speeches at the 50-yard line after football games surrounded by his student players. Now, the court kind of focused on you know, a particular facts of the case where the last three games before he was actually fired or suspended, rather, by the school district, he wasn't actually surrounded by um, his own students. In fact, he was observing a silent kneeling prayer. Now, that kind of kicked off a big factual dispute between the majority and the, dis- and the liberal dissenters who were like, you're, the Sotomayor in her dissent was basically like, you're closing your eyes to the facts of this case where, you know, this wasn't just three one-off games here. It was a years-long tradition of uh, establishment clause violations. Anyway, that's all to say, an interesting constitutional ruling there, one of the uh, yet another um, conservative majority decision expanding the scope or, or at least kind of you know relying on a broad view of the free exercise clause of the Constitution to rule in favor of a religious litigant. We also had some uh, other big opinions come out Wednesday and today, Thursday, that we're recording. Uh, the last two opinions uh, saved for the end of the term. Uh, both came from Roberts. And Jimmy, I know we have a special guest uh, to talk through the first one. That's right. Why don't we just jump into the first one here? So this is a case called West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency, which we've discussed on the podcast before. We had you know, Law 360's energy reporter Keith Goldberg to kind of break some of the issues down. But let's circle back and kind of check in on what the Supreme Court actually said. So this morning in the case, the court rules six to three that the EPA lacks the authority under existing law to impose sweeping climate change policies aimed at reducing the carbon footprint of the nation's energy system. This is something environmentalists and Democrats described as being a crushing blow in the fight against the existential threat to the world and the human race of climate change in that the Supreme Court has essentially kneecapped the federal government from being able to do anything about this, anything of substance, that is. Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, we have Republicans cheering, you know, a a Supreme Court decision that stops what they perceive to be agency overreach going beyond their statutory authority. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the decision for the majority. Justice Elena Kagan joined by the court's two other liberal justices. She dissented. And here to help us understand the ruling and what it means, we now welcome to the show Jonathan Adler. He's a professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law and a well-known legal blogger. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So can you kind of explain at a, at a kind of a high level here, you know, what some of the background of this case is and what are some of these climate change policies that we're even talking about? Sure. 
So the case concerns Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, which gives the EPA the authority uh, to require uh, utilities to adopt the best system of emission reduction that's been adequately demonstrated considering cost. And um, beginning in the Obama administration, uh, the EPA has wanted to use this policy or this authority to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector, which is one of the larger sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the country. Uh, and the way they wanted to use this power was not simply to impose you know, scrubbers or pollution control equipment, but rather to recognize that if you want, want to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions from power production, you want to change the sources of energy and fuel that are, are used in the first place. So it's not about trying to squeeze carbon dioxide emissions out of uh, coal. It's more about displacing coal, using more natural gas, and perhaps even using more uh, renewables like wind and solar. Um, the Trump administration, uh, a lot of uh, several red states, uh, including West Virginia, believe that this goes beyond the authority that the EPA has, that Section 111 is really only about traditional pollution control measures that are applied at a facility and do not involve the power to not merely impose controls at a facility, but to tell a facility to use a different fuel source or perhaps even to use a different facility, right? To tell a utility, don't control emissions at this coal plant, but use this coal plant less. Uh, and their argument, an argument that the Supreme Court accepted, is that that sort of shift is a dramatic departure from the power that Congress had delegated to the EPA and the sort of departure that Congress has to more clearly authorize than it did when it enacted Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. Now, there's some complicated procedural history here. You know, this policy first rolled out under Obama, reversed under Trump. Now it's up in the air under Biden. What is it exactly that the court has told the EPA that it can't do? Well, yeah, so, so, just, so folks understand the, the procedural policy. The, the Obama administration had adopted a regulation based on this broad conception of the EPA's authority through something called the Clean Power Plan. Um, that had been stayed by the Supreme Court pending litigation. Trump administration gets elected. The Trump administration undoes the Clean Power Plan and adopts something called the ACE Rule, which was a very narrow interpretation of the EPA's authority. That was also challenged in court. The D.C. Circuit invalidated both the Trump administration's ACE rule, its, its narrow regulation, as well as the Trump administration's repeal of the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan. And so the, this case came up to the Supreme Court reviewing that D.C. Circuit decision. There was some dispute about whether or not that really meant there was a case or controversy because the Biden administration said it didn't want to go back to the Obama Clean Power Plan. It rather wanted to adopt a new policy, one based on a similarly expansive understanding of the EPA's authority, but new and different and up to date, uh, rather than um, the, at this point, many years old Obama administration policy. And, and ultimately, though, there was no dispute that the court had jurisdiction to hear the case. Although the dissenters certainly thought it was un, uh, needlessly aggressive to review the scope of the EPA's authority now without there being a Biden administration regulation in place being enforced to review. In terms of what this means, in terms of what the EPA can do, the court said that um, the Section 111 can't be used to mandate or force 
uh, generation shifting, replacing coal with other sources of power. Um, there's a paragraph near the very end of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion that says we're not holding anything beyond that. So the best way to understand that is we are not saying the Trump administration's particularly narrow or stingy interpretation of Section 111 is correct. We're merely saying that this very broad interpretation that the Obama administration had adopted and that the D.C. Circuit had blessed uh, is too broad and that there may be something in between um, that would be okay. We're not saying anything about that. And and the Biden administration clearly is going to be trying to figure out if it can identify something in that in that middle ground. Yeah, the the topic of generation shifting, I guess, is is an important distinction here because there's a lot of commentary around this that you know the the Supreme Court has held that the EPA cannot regulate greenhouse gas emissions. That that's not exactly what it held. It held that it's this broader generation shifting where you're going outside of the actual equipment used in this in these I guess smokestacks or whatever, and talking about trying to move away from coal and doing these carbon offsets and cap and trade, et cetera, et cetera. So. Right. Did the I mean, I'm just trying to think of broader uh, implications here. Did the court kind of foreclose um, Congress from going back and kind of giving the EPA this authority in the future? No. So, in, in fact, I think the best way to understand what the court's message to Congress is, is that Congress, if you want the EPA to do more than require individual facilities to be more efficient or to emit less, you have to give EPA that authority. Um, there is nothing in the majority opinion that says the EPA can't do that, or sorry, that Congress can't delegate that authority. And in fact, the, the primary thrust of the chief's opinion is Congress must do that, um, that agencies only have that power which Congress has actually given them in statutes, and that when agencies take a statute that is decades old and seek to use it in a new way, or seek to use it to address a problem that Congress wasn't focused on when the statute was enacted, we're going to be very skeptical of that. And so that means in the context of climate change, um, if we're going to have more aggressive climate change policies, Congress needs to do something in terms of the authority the EPA has, but probably also in terms of what other agencies have. So there's a Securities and Exchange Commission proposal right now um, to require broader reporting of, of um, climate emissions and the like. Uh, from companies as part of their uh, securities disclosures. I think this decision suggests that the SEC has to be careful with how broad that regulation is. Um, there are other agencies like FERC where similarly there will be questions about how broadly they can use pre-existing regulatory authority to address concerns like climate change. And then I would say beyond that, in any regulatory area where because, say, of technological change, um, the sorts of problems that agencies are addressing are different than the sorts of problems Congress was thinking about when Congress gave them regulatory authority. Those are areas where agency regulation could be vulnerable too. So things like mandating net neutrality um, under the Communications Act or perhaps financial regulation that's going to be focused on internet banking and the fact that we now bank on our phones, but these statutes were written in the day when you actually had to walk into the bank and, and sign a deposit slip. Those are the areas where I think this decision is likely to have the biggest impact because there's this disconnect between what Congress was focused on when it wrote the statute and the thing that the agency is focusing on now. So this definitely just affects more than just environmental rules, yes. essentially. Yeah, the, prin the principle, I mean, 
the, the principle, the, the so-called major questions doctrine that 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 the majority is embracing um, and reinforcing here has broader implications and really sends the message to Congress that you need to be in the more regular practice of revisiting statutes and reauthorizing agency authority and amending statutes so that they remain up to date. This isn't something that agencies are allowed to do on their own. And yet this was also a case that was kind of billed as the second coming of the the so-called non-delegation doctrine, the idea that if the court recognized, let's say that the Clean Air Act, in fact, gave them the authority, the, the EPA, the authority to do this, then it was an unconstitutional delegation of power. Can you kind of break down some of those issues and how that did or did not play a role in the ultimate disposition of this particular case? Yeah, I, I don't think you really see that um, in, in the majority opinion. Um, I mean, I think that that both both folks that really want a revival of the non-delegation doctrine and folks that are really terrified of Supreme Court decisions that constrain agencies both played up that aspect of the case, I think, more than it was really there. Um, you know, other than, in the majority opinion, other than a nod to the underlying separation of powers principle that agencies get their authority from Congress, there really isn't much of a constitutional dimension there. Um, uh, but in the background, there is this idea that um, not merely that Congress doesn't give agencies blank checks, but that Congress couldn't. Uh, and you know, certainly, I think, for some of the justices on the court, this belief that Congress can't write a blank check to an agency to then do whatever it wants should inform the way statutes are interpreted and, and counsels in favor of interpreting statutes more narrowly. Um, so as to ensure those constitutional uh, concerns aren't raised. Now, I think in this case, the way the chief justice addresses the, the Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, I think he's more focused on, you know, this is a particular somewhat technical language designed to address a certain sort of problem in a certain sort of way. It's not really the constitutional concern that's doing the work. It's rather this kind of basic notion of the way that power is delegated. Um, in, in a sense, it's relying upon what we could call agency law principles, not agency like administrative agency, but agency as in principal agent relationships. That when the principal here, Congress, delegates power to its agent, it's one thing to say the agent gets to fill in the details. It's quite different to say the agency gets to repurpose that power or embark off in some new direction without going back to the principal first and saying, hey, are we allowed to do this? And I think that's what's really doing most of the work in the majority, although there certainly are some justices on the court that would like to uh, bring the constitutional questions more front and center in this sort of case. Yeah, it's a really interesting case that just shows how what can sometimes kind of be difficult to access, you know, topics about administrative law have such, you know, on the ground effects. And of course, there's always, I'm sure you're like, you know, like, you know, rolling your eyes at some of the things that you're seeing in the commentary about this case, because it's your area of expertise. Well, it's an area that, you know, to me, you know, you're right that it is, it is an example of, of how administrative law principles are incredibly important. I mean, I, I feel like I'm constantly evangelizing that we, more people should be administrative law nerds um, because it really matters. And whether you agree with the court's decision or not, this this idea that you know agencies only have that power that Congress gives them, and we need a set of rules to understand how Congress gives that power, how much power it gave, um, how much power is too much, is really important. Uh, and 
Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I I love the chance to be able to dig into to the, the the administrative law aspects of this because it is really important in in climate change, immigration, a whole whole wide range of areas. Well, thanks so much for uh, for joining us, Jonathan, and breaking it all down. Appreciate having you on. My pleasure. It was great to speak with Jonathan to unpack that case. Uh, but there is more this week. Um, Jimmy, I know you've been following the one that came out on Wednesday, which I feel like we've been calling McGirt Part Two. <laughs> do you wanna do you wanna kind of break that one down? Sure, why not? So this was a case, not McGirt Part Two, but that, I think that's a really good name for it. Uh, it's Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta. Top line here. Five to four holding by the Supreme Court that Oklahoma has jurisdiction to prosecute non-Indians for crimes against Indian victims in Indian country. This is a clear-cut victory for the state that they had been seeking in this case. And some background, Natalie. Um, if you recall our episode where we kind of dove into the whole issue surrounding um, the, the Supreme Court's 2020 McGirt decision... That has, that has set up what Oklahoma now deems a law enforcement crisis. So, by way of background, McGirt basically said that Congress had never disestablished the historic boundary of the Creek Nation. In the aftermath of that ruling, um, a number of state courts similarly said that the historic boundary for the other five tribes, uh, including the Cherokee, which is the Cherokee Nation, which is at issue in this case, had never been disestablished and kind of maintained those historic boundaries. So what this did was it reclassified much of eastern Oklahoma as Indian country uh, for purposes of you know criminal jurisdiction, where thousands of cases now need to be retried by federal prosecutors. So Oklahoma hates this ruling. It has, again, called it a crisis, and it has tried and failed to get the Supreme Court to overturn McGirt. But the Supreme Court refused and turned away something around, you know, 30 petitions for certiorari filed by the state, which, again, as a refresher, had hired, you know, some high-powered outside counsel to represent it in some of this McGirt litigation. That brings us to this case. So this case turns on kind of this narrower subset of cases involving Mm -hmm. non-native defendants and native victims. So Oklahoma says that these this particular subset of cases accounts for around 20% of the 18,000 or so cases that are being that is being handed over to federal prosecutors. Well, it worked. Uh, Oklahoma was successful and the Supreme Court on Wednesday in the case you know, the Castro Huerta case, said that those convictions can stand because states do have concurrent jurisdiction over these crimes. So I know that's like the technical takeaway here, but this case really has some broader implications for sovereignty and for tribal sovereignty. Um, and it was kind of uh, laid out in the in the kind of two opinions uh, here between uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Can you, can you discuss that a little bit? Absolutely. You're totally right that this has bigger implications for tribal sovereignty that we can get to in a minute. But basically, this one came down to a dispute between um, the majority in a decision written by Justice Brett Kavanaugh and a dissent, um, the principal dissent joined by the liberal justices written by Kavanaugh's you know, former classmate at Georgetown Prep, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch. 
the avowed kind of textualist and originalist and libertarian and pro-tribal rights justice on the court. And it was a really a dispute about whether federal law preempts explicitly uh, state jurisdiction over this subset of cases. Now, they're kind of operating in two different worlds here, where Kavanaugh is looking through the United States Code, you know, where, where all the laws of the U.S. are listed, and says, look, there's nothing in here that explicitly preempts states from exercising jurisdiction over crimes committed by non-natives against Native American victims. Nothing in here. And therefore, under our you know, doctrine and how we approach tribal sovereignty cases, unless there is an explicit you know, code in the federal law preempting it, then we have to say that states exercise concurrent jurisdiction. And the dissent obviously took a completely different take and said, look, okay, maybe there's not anything explicitly in the United States Code, but, you know, this is part of a huge tradition in this country going back to the structure of the Constitution that gives the exclusive authority to the federal government, not the states, to handle Indian affairs. And Justice Gorsuch's uh, dissent, which is, an, I mean, both of these are pretty fascinating reads. It's a, it's kind of a good kind of discourse between textualism on, 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 on the one hand, um, by Kavanaugh and kind of the originalist methods of Justice Gorsuch on the other. Um, but Gorsuch points to a 200 year old decision written by Chief Justice John Marshall, in fact, holding that state law had no force in the Cherokee Nation. Um, so, you know, it's it's you, your your point is a fair one that this has pretty big implications for tribal sovereignty down the board. Um, tribes were very unhappy with the ruling as well as a lot of uh, Native American law attorneys. Um, but of course, Oklahoma will now be able to kind of preserve that subset of cases. I guess around twenty percent of eighteen thousand. I can't do the math quickly enough. Anyway, a good number of cases whose convictions will not have to be overturned and then retried by federal prosecutors. Basically, that's the big takeaway. Moving on to what was our last case and last opinion of the term, uh, Biden v. Texas in a five to four ruling, the high court today gave the Biden administration the green light to end the so-called Remain in Mexico program started under Trump uh, that requires asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their claims for protection are being processed. Um, so just a kind of a bit of a background reminder of this case um, and the program, which is formerly known as the Migrant Protection Protocols. Uh, as we talked in a previous episode, I think actually the same episode as as uh, the the Oklahoma case. Uh, this had caused uh, this program started under Trump had caused basically a logistical nightmare for the federal government. Um, it you know because it basically calls on the government to take migrants and bust them back to another sovereign country and negotiate their return with that country in this case Mexico but also with Canada. Texas and Missouri um, had been arguing to the court that Biden couldn't nix the policy, though, uh, because to do so would violate the Immigration and Nationality Act, um, and a, specifically a clause there that calls for unauthorized migrants um, to be returned to a contiguous territory like Mexico or Canada. I guess one note on that, um, going back to just beyond the logistical nightmare 
potentially of, you know, the government dealing with the government of Mexico as to how to house um, and detain these migrants who are from countries other than Mexico. Um, a lot of immigration advocates pointed to the fact that under the policy, thousands of migrants were detained in pretty dangerous conditions where there were, in some cases, threats to their lives. So I guess that's one other added element of this case. But Natalie, let's get back to kind of the statute here. And so I guess what was the upshot of the majority? I kind of read the, the, whole, the key holding of the case, which seemed pretty fairly straightforward. It was like, yeah, the government does have the authority to stop and terminate this program, right? I mean, it's it's not much more complicated than that, right? Oh, no, no, no. It's <laughs> it's complicated. Um so so just taking this step by step. Uh the majority here was Roberts and Kavanaugh joining the liberal wing of the court. Um and the the majority basically reversed a Fifth Circuit decision and said that the language in the Immigration Nationality Act doesn't mandate the federal government to do this, but only says that they may have a program like the Remain in Mexico program. This being to return migrants to contiguous territories. Exactly. While they um, await know, they, their proceedings, right? There was a textualist historical look at, you know, when the language that was put into this act um, and the circumstances under which it was adopted, um, which the, the justices said point to it being a discretionary choice for the administration. Um, the majority also acknowledged the foreign affairs consequences of reading this as a mandate um, and, you know, how that could essentially be um, a problem. But you're right, Jimmy, this was on the surface a win for the federal government, a big one for the Biden administration, except there was some fine print, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so um, essentially... Justice Roberts' majority opinion ends with um, a call for, you know, on remands, because they're remanding this case back down to the Fifth Circuit, that they should consider another issue um, regarding whether there's, a like, a, a way to come back at this policy under the Administrative Procedure Act. So that kind of is leaving the door open. This is not a case-closed situation about remain in Mexico, essentially. Oh, okay. I see. So... Basically, the merits of this case was like the Fifth Circuit holding like the Biden administration didn't have the statutory authority to do this. Right. And then but there was a separate grounds upon which they ruled, which had to do with the way in which it terminated the program. And that was the grounds based on complying with the Administrative Procedure Act. And Chief Justice Roberts's majority decision is saying we're just ruling on the statutory issue, the merits of this. We're not ruling on this issue under the APA. We're going to kick this case back down and you guys can figure out those issues. Is that, is that basically, more or less yes. what's going on? Basically, okay. yes. This, this policy, as you can imagine, has a very long and complicated procedural history um, involving lots of different memorandums from the Biden administration, from the Trump administration, and policy changes and memos. Um, so, yes, essentially, <laughs> you are correct. Well, that's exciting to know that there's always more litigation around the corner. <laughs> so, um, But there are no more Supreme Court decisions around the corner, Natalie. We are officially done with um, big merits rulings this term, um, with always the caveat that the shadow docket does not sleep, and it continues on well into the summer recess until 
officially the next term begins on the first Monday in October. We should probably tell our listeners at this point, Natalie, that we have kind of a special episode planned, right? I was about to say, with this, you're not hearing the last of us. Uh, stay tuned, please, uh, listeners, as we'll have a special episode we're releasing tomorrow, Friday evening, um, where we're going to kind of wrap up what happened this term and look at the big themes. And excitingly, we're going to do it with our sister podcast, the Law 360's Pro Se team. Uh, so please keep an eye out on that um, as you enjoy the holiday weekend. So excited for that. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and contributing reporters this week, Rachel Scharf, Alyssa Aquino, Keith Goldberg, and Andrew Wesney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.